It is, um, man, it's great to see you guys. Um, I hate to cut this part short, but I, I think it's really important that we talk about fireworks safety for a minute before we head into the holiday weekend. Are we? I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. Um, hey, if you're new, my name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here, and this is a great week to be here for the first time because we're actually jumping into a new series. We're going to take the next few weeks, and we're going to go through the book of First Peter. And there, there's a very specific reason that, that we're going through this book because I think it's really written to a group of people whose hearts are in a very similar state to ours. Um, I, I've, I've themed the series this, this idea of indescribable joy because the book of First Peter is written to a group of Christians and it's encouraging them to be people who are known and marked by an indescribable joy. Now what's crazy about that is that when you understand the circumstances of the people he's asking to be marked by indescribable joy, it doesn't make any logical sense for them to have that reaction because the Christians that he's writing to are largely in um, Western Turkey. And we, well, here's what we know for sure. We know for sure that this was a group of Christians that was experiencing a fairly intense level of persecution um, socially, um, sometimes physically, and uh, man, just even morally, just they, so there's these stories that we know of these people maybe being run out of a business because they were Christians or being cheated out of a land deal and suffering financially. There's stories of them being beat up. There's stories of them being left out. Depending on who you read, there is a large section of commentators that also believe that a group of these Christians were resettled by the Roman Empire. They're literally ripped away from their homes and planted in a completely different part of the empire. So everything thing about the lives of these Christians that we're going to take a look into was marked by uncertainty. And the reason that I felt such a resonance with that is because, at least for me, I don't know if this has been true for you, the last probably four or five years seems like it has been marked by more uncertainty than I can remember in my lifetime, right? Like, so 84, um, we had a fairly smooth first 20 years of my existence just as a country. Like, things were pretty chill. Um, the 80s and 90s, it was fine. Then we had 9-11, the great financial crisis. And then just since then, it seems like it's picked up speed, right? So like in the last four years, we have had widespread political and social unrest. We've had a global pandemic, a new war in Europe for the first time in quite a while. And now um, inflation's here. And I didn't get to do that the first time. I wasn't around for the early 80s. Some of you guys are like, no, 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 we've done it before. It'll be fine. For me, this is new. And so listen, um, if you're like me, when we get put in this spot of uncertainty, and honestly, even for Christians, for a lot of us, it feels like a really uncertain world because the attitude of our culture towards the church and faith seems like it shifted pretty dramatically in the past 20 years. And some people would say, hey, there's some good in that. Other people would say that is not good. Regardless of your perspective on that, what we can agree on is that there's a lot of change and there's a lot of uncertainty. And listen, when we're met with uncertainty, we usually go one of two ways, right? It's, it's fight or flight. And, and I think you see this reflected in the church. When you get on social media, when you talk to people, when you see Christians in just the larger news media making statements, um, usually it's something like we should be scared and hide or we should fight everyone to reclaim lost Christendom, right? Like it seems like there's no in between. And I wonder if there's not a third way. I wonder if scripture wouldn't call us to a different way of engaging an uncertain world. Because for me, 
When things are uncertain, I am rarely defined by someone that has an indescribable joy. That, that's not what I do with uncertainty. I usually go control. I usually go stress. I usually go anxiety. I go aggressive. And I don't reflect joy. So listen, how does the church reflect joy when we don't know if we can afford groceries? How, how do we reflect joy when our country is changing and people just seem mean? How, how do we reflect joy when politically there's just, well, I mean, turn on the news, right? Like, how, how, how are we supposed to be joyful right now? How are we? I think it's in the same way that Peter is going to ask these Christians to be joyful in the midst of persecution and uncertainty. And it just, I think that's why this letter has really resonated with my heart recently is because I haven't been particularly joyful. I've been stressed and, and wanting to fix things, which I don't know why um, Jerome Powell's going to ask me what I think about interest rates, but either way, I'm prepared, right? And so how, how do we move from stress or fear or anger into the joy that scripture calls us into? What we're going to see here is really not to be overly reductionistic about this. There's three perspectives that he's going to call us to change. There's three perspectives that we need to identify and we need to make some shifts in how we think about these perspectives because when we get this wrong, it's going to be very difficult for us to be joyful. But when we align ourselves biblically with these perspectives, the only logical outcome is indescribable joy. And ultimately, that's the life that God's called us into. God hasn't called us to be fearful or angry. He hasn't called us to worry. He's called us to be joyful. He's called us to be loving. And, and I think there's some roadblocks that get in our way. And the funny thing is, you know, 2,000 years later, it's a lot of the same roadblocks that our brothers and sisters in Christ faced that we're reading this. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in First Peter. It's in the New Testament. Um, all the way in the back. It's, it's a short letter. It's a great letter. And I love that it's Peter writing this because you can see how God has worked in his heart in the way he's addressing these people in opposition to maybe who he was at times in the Gospels, right? And so um, let's look at the first perspective he's going to call him to. It's just the first three verses here. This is his greeting. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So let's talk about this a little bit because he, he just told them a lot in a greeting. We, we read that first passage and it seems odd, some of the language he's using, but when he talks to them about being elect exiles of the dispersion, he's intentionally making a reference to the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when God's people were invaded, they were spread out across the Near East, mostly into Babylon and Persia, right? And so he's intentionally making a connection with these people to these Old Testament people of God. He's saying that like those people, you are not where you're supposed to be. You're not at home. You're spread out. You're exiled. That in and of itself is calling them to this really key aspect that when uncertainty happens, it, it really threatens us. And that's their identity. And that's the first perspective I want to talk about. It's the perspective of identity. Listen, who you are 
is such a core piece of where you find certainty that when your identity is threatened or uncertain, it's, it's usually when things start to unravel in our lives, right? And so here's what he's reminding them, that what makes them who they are has nothing to do with where they live. It has nothing to do with their relationship to the Roman Empire. It has nothing to do with where they are geographically or how people treat them or their standing in society. Everything about who they are, look at it, is rooted in the promises that God has made them. He he reminds them that they're elect exiles, that God has chosen them, and they're not at home. They're spread out in foreign places. He reminds them that he did it for the sanctification of the Spirit with the sprinkling of blood. And that's interesting because most people will tell you that the sprinkling of blood that he's referencing there refers to the same sprinkling of blood that they would do to a priest who's being consecrated for service. Again, just reminding them that the core of who they are is how they have been chosen and set apart by God. And here's why that's comforting to these people, because think about what their life's become. Because of their faith, they can't get a job. Nobody wants to talk to them and hang out with them. They might be facing physical danger. And he's saying, despite all of that, it doesn't change who you are. Listen, one of the dangerous places we can get spiritually is that when our identity shifts away from who we are in Christ into who we are here right? Like when what defines who we are isn't what God's done for us, we're setting ourselves up for uncertainty to train wreck us. Think about all the places that we get our identity from, right? And like, if you want a really concrete example of how humans do this, think back to when you were in high school. High school students, I know you're different, but when we were in high school, what we would do is like what we wore would communicate a huge amount of who we wanted to be, right? And so listen, when I was in high school in Dallas, like it was really important that you had Abercrombie on and a puka shell necklace and we do that I don't know if you guys did this like we'd fringe our jeans so like you'd cut it here and then like you cut here and there's like did you did you do the fringe millennials in northern Georgia is that a thing here okay good it wasn't just us right or maybe if that wasn't who you wanted to be you'd have your nine inch nails downward spiral concert tee and your black nail polish right I think brick you went through a phase maybe and so um <laughs> gonna be a fun elder meeting Wednesday I don't know we're gonna see how that goes okay um <laughs> Because you just needed people to see that inner darkness and depth, you know, that could only be expressed through that musical styling and the jinkos that like you could put appliances in. Do you guys remember these? And so I don't know what your, what your spot was. Maybe I remember looking back at my mom's photos and be like, man, why did they dress this way? We were super intentional about curating our identity in these really concrete ways. And here's what happens. We don't stop. We just find different ways to do that as adults. And so one of the reasons that we're stressed out right now is because a lot of those places where we find our identity are being threatened by just a crazy world in unique ways. Our money, hmm? maybe it's not even like, hey, I'm not one of those people where I need fancy stuff and money to be, no, 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 but money might be a part of your identity in terms of being a secure, responsible adult. What happens when inflation peaks? That aspect of our identity is threatened a little bit now. Man, what happens when people at work know you go to church and suddenly that's not socially acceptable anymore? What happens when you speak out about your faith? And listen, a lot of us, it's easy. Our identity, if most people talk to you, hey, tell me about yourself. What's the first thing we answer with? Let me tell you about what I do for a job. Listen, 
what happens when the uncertainty of culture, now maybe that job that you found your identity in, it comes out that you're a Christian, and now that hurts you professionally. Now there's been this aspect of your identity that's kind of been chipped away a little bit. That wasn't true before. Maybe your identity is less about Jesus and more about the political affiliation that you hold. I know that's not a problem in the church today, but like hypothetically, maybe, maybe what's happened is over time, your primary identity isn't that you're a chosen exile that has been purified by the resurrection of Jesus. Your primary identity has become, I am a Democrat or I am a Republican. Like you're tense when I just say the names of the parties, like you can feel it in here. That's where we are right now. And it's like, man, I have no joy. I have no vitality. I have no faith because my political perspective isn't going the way I want to. And if I can't get the other side to do what I want, then the world is not going to be at peace. Anybody? And when that happens, we wonder why when people talk about Christians, they don't often consider us people that are defined by an inexpressible joy. It's because our identity has been shifted away from who we are in Jesus Christ, and it's been anchored in the temporal. And listen, that's really difficult, right? Because we live in a temporal world. Touch, see, feel, smell. We're surrounded by it. We're bombarded by it. We live in a culture that is constantly giving us messages about who we're supposed to be. Now, most of it's advertising because they want your money, but at the end of the day, like everything around us is screaming at us. This is who you should be. This is what it means to be successful. This is what it means to be loved. This is what it means to be accepted. And if you want those things, this is how you accomplish it. How can we not get caught up in that? How can we not seek affirmation and safety and connection? Unfortunately, because we live in a broken world, the avenues that the world wants to put on us in terms of our identity don't always, if ever, lead to a lasting peace because they can be threatened and they can be taken away. Right? And so this is such a key perspective for us to get our arms around because when uncertainty hits, there's gonna be two different ways your identity goes. An identity that's anchored in Jesus is never gonna be taken away, right? There's nothing the world can do that can change who you are in Jesus Christ. There's nothing that persecution can do. There's nothing that a bad economy can do. There's nothing that rejection or failure can do that can take away who you are in Jesus Christ because the good news of the gospel is who you are in Jesus has nothing to do with what you've done. It's not something you've earned. It's not something you've accomplished. It's not something that you deserve. It's simply the gift and mercy of God because he loves you. That's it. So we can have an inexpressible joy that regardless of how our temporary identity might change or be threatened, nothing takes away the core of who we are in Jesus Christ. Man, the economy can go completely off the rails. We're still beloved children of God. We can lose our job. We can mess up. We can have a moral failing. We can have a difficulty in our marriage. Our kids can go sideways. Nothing can take away who you are in Jesus Christ. There is not an uncertainty that the world can throw at you that can alter the core identity of who you are because you are beloved by God, a new creation in Jesus, his masterpiece, his beloved child, who he has set apart for his purposes. The only logical response to that is joyful worship. Unfortunately, that's a perspective that gets obscured. So how do we fight that drift? I think there's two ways. I think number one is being in the word, right? Like the more that we read the word of God, the more that we're conformed to the truth of who we are and how he sees us. Here's the second one, and this is where we come in, is that's Christian community. The most 
potent antidote to the false identity the world wants to put on us is living in deep community with other Christians because we need those voices to remind us of who we are, both who we are corporately and who we are individually because you've been wired a certain way by God, right? Like your core identity is the same as everyone else's and you're unique to him. You have giftings and wirings and passions and a role to play. Who you are is special and you need people to affirm those facts in you. If you aren't living in community, and I don't mean just going to small group because you can go to small group and kind of sit in the corner, right? But, and that's fine if that's where you're at right now. But if you stay there and nobody knows you, it's going to be really hard for them to speak life into your soul the way that God's called the church to. So one of the most powerful ways that we fight this perspective drift is by speaking truth to one another. It's by knowing one another. It's by being vulnerable. It's by being a church that makes this a safe place for people to open up where people know they'll be loved and cared for, that will be gently corrected, that they will be affirmed in the most important aspect of their being, and that's that they're a beloved child of God. And so this isn't an individual application. This is a corporate response to the uncertainty of the world where we remind each other our identity is not in what we do. It's not the money that we have. It's not what we can contribute. Our identity is solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and it could not be better than that. Right, so that's the first perspective that he's gonna walk them through is he reminds them of who they are. Listen, the world is supposed to feel uncomfortable. It's supposed to be uncertain. Do you know why? Because it's not home. That's what he's trying to get across to them when he calls them exiles. He's like, yeah, it's supposed to feel weird here, right? I remember, um, so I grew up in Dallas, a uh, large city, obviously. And when we moved to Terre Haute, Indiana for the first time, I just, I'd never lived in a place that small. I was like, this doesn't feel like home. Everything about this feels weird and foreign. Everyone is related. Everyone went to kindergarten together. This is just, there's, there's one grocery store. That's not true. There's more than one grocery store. That's not fair. There's three. And so, um, so listen, it just felt very different. It felt very different. When he tells them that they're exiles, he's saying the world is supposed to feel different because this isn't your home. This isn't where we stay. This isn't the goal. That takes us to the next perspective and that's the perspective of eternity. And this is key. This is key and we have to fight to work for this one, okay? He says, to an inheritance, right? He just said that we were born again to Jesus Christ through the resurrection from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in you for heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice. I love this. I love the way that this connects with what it means to know Jesus. That you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Listen, from the time that I was, um, like, could talk, I just, I had words for everything. Maybe that's surprising to you. And so the idea of a joy that you can't describe resonates with me on a deep level because it's just more than we can get our arms around. Where does that come from? From Jesus Christ. And specifically the aspect of our salvation that he's referring to here is the goal of our salvation. And we need to hear this because for a long time we've lived in a world that wants to give us a different message. The goal of our salvation is not right now. 
the goal and hope of everything we have has nothing to do with anything on earth. Now, hear me. Do good things happen on earth? Yes. Does God sanctify us on earth? Yes. Does he call us to expand his kingdom on earth? Yes. Is the ultimate goal of our salvation here on earth? No. No. It's in eternity. It's in eternity. The reason that the gospel is so powerful is because it goes beyond the limits of the broken world that we live in. But man, we have a hard time with that because we live in a world that's taught us that you can find salvation on earth. If you have enough money, if you have the right kind of relationship, if you're sexually fulfilled, if you're ex like whatever, fill in the blank. But we really are just constantly fed this idea that if you're uncomfortable right now, then things just, you're doing something wrong. If there's any discomfort or problems, you're doing something wrong. And we like to be comfortable. So um, I was, I've been back and forth a bit as we're kind of getting transitioned and moved. And I was, was it last week? I think it was last week, whatever. In the last month, I was down here. Um, it was last week and was flying back home. Um, Joel was nice enough to take me to the airport. And I got there early because I, I really like good food, right? And so there's a specific place in the Atlanta Hartsfield Airport in the International Terminal. It's called Echo. It's an Italian restaurant. And when you go to their website, it clearly says that they open at 10 a.m. That's important because I had a flight that I needed to board at 12.25 and I don't like to be late. So I needed to be open so I could sit in peace and enjoy my fried cheese, um, my fried goat cheese balls with honey on them. Strongly recommend, by the way. Um, and I've got to take the train to the F terminal. They weren't open at 10 o'clock. Did they not understand that they were impeding with my personal preferences and comfort? It's like the people there didn't realize that I was there to eat their food. They didn't care. And I couldn't believe it. I had been inconvenienced and was experiencing discomfort because of their lack of professionalism and care about me as an individual. I'm kidding, don't worry. But listen, in that moment, I'll be honest, there was something in me that was like, why? You're supposed to be open. Why am I uncomfortable? And when we're uncertain, we're uncomfortable. What happens when we're uncomfortable? We seek comfort. That's just a reflex we have. And when we don't have a perspective of eternity, we will always chase earthly comfort. And listen, that's not abnormal. That's part of how we're wired. So when I was a kid, we uh, moved around a lot. My mom, um, my parents got a divorce. We, we had moved to Corpus Christi, Texas, which is all the way at the bottom. And then my parents split. We moved back to Austin. Uh, my mom got remarried to a great guy. Um, and then we moved Dallas where he was. And then from there, we moved to um, Greenville, South Carolina, and then Topeka, and then Indiana, and now here. And so all that to say, we moved around. And as a kid, I moved around a lot. I'm an only child, actually only grandchild, on my mom's side, so pray for my wife now that you're armed with that information. So for me, in the midst of all that uncertainty, I'll tell you that I found a lot of comfort in my grandparents' house. Um, I, I was their only grandkid, and so their house never changed. They lived outside of Austin in Cedar Park, and there was just cedar trees and blue bonnets in their garden and great food and everything smelled the same and looked the same, and it just represented peace and comfort for me. And so um, that, was, that was just a safe place for me. Here's what happened. Um, so my grandparents died, and I went back for my grandmother's funeral. And so I don't know what you know about Austin, but um, I went out on their back porch, and I could see houses out their backyard. And just in that moment, like, I <laughs> completely fell apart. 
because my entire life, they lived out in the country and everything about their place was a secluded bubble in that moment. What those houses represented wasn't um, an obnoxious outward expansion in Austin where now all your neighbors are from California and have never owned a pickup truck. It was bigger than that. Um, it was that everything that used to make this safe is gone. My grandparents were gone. They had passed away. Um, the nature, the area of what it looked like had changed because listen, things in the world change. Time happens, things decay. This, this, this kind of jewel of what had been certainty had been completely taken away from me by the realities of the world. And here's the hard truth, man. Anything that you're going to for certainty with a temporal perspective is gonna be impacted the same way. I love what Karen Job's commentary on, Corinth, on First Peter, excuse me, um, it's one I'm gonna be in a lot. So if you wanna dig into one through this series, I, I strongly recommend hers. It's very, very good. She, she notes the way he describes our eternal inheritance in Jesus Christ. Look what he says that it's imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's unfading. And here's what she says. She rephrases that. She says, it's untouched by death, it's untouched by evil, and it's untouched by the decay of time. The eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ is untouched by death, it's untouched by evil, and it's untouched by the decay of time. Anything else that we look to for salvation cannot meet that standard because nothing else is eternal. Nothing else is untouched by evil in this world and nothing else is untouched by time. All of these places that are threatened right now, when we're freaking out a little bit, society's changing. What's gonna happen with the economy? The soft landing's gonna be tricky. Are there gonna be more riots? What's gonna happen? This Roe versus Wade thing's making me a little nervous. What are we gonna do? Man, listen, this is all gonna pass away one day, right? It's not gonna be here. The reason that he calls them to an inexpressible joy is because that through Jesus Christ, they've been given this salvation that transcends all of the struggles and the suffering that they have. And we're gonna get more into suffering later. Don't worry, that's always a fun Sunday. We are gonna talk about it um, a little bit more in depth. And so what he's saying here though, is that their perspective has to be an eternal perspective. Because of Jesus Christ, they are filled with an inexpressible joy at their ultimate inheritance. So he's saying there's a coming salvation. The verbiage in this is, is a future tense happening. It's not right now. There's a coming salvation. The end of your salvation will be accomplished at the end of time when Christ Jesus judges the world and it creates a new heaven and a new earth. Saying you're not there yet. And so the uncertainty of the world should be expected. We're not at salvation yet. It's not time. We're waiting we're expectantly waiting. And in that time, we are anchored in a joy at who Jesus Christ is because nothing that we're feeling stressed out by right now is gonna matter in a thousand years. Does that mean that it's not okay to mourn? Does that mean it's not okay to be sad? No, of course not, that's not what he's saying here. But what he is saying is that if we're going to be a people that are defined by an inexpressible joy, it's going to be built on the foundation of an eternal perspective. And as a church, it's, it's really hard for us to do that sometimes because we get caught up in the right now. And so maybe you're a little bit stressed out right now. Um, and maybe you're looking at the 401k and you're like, this is not the time in my life. I needed the economy to do this. Maybe you're looking at a marriage or a, I don't know. I don't know where you're at. Um, but you know, listen, 
we are never going to fully experience the joy of salvation if we expect God to provide it in its entirety with things that you can see, touch, and smell right now. He's telling them, you didn't even know Jesus and you still believe in him, right? And so how do we have an eternal perspective? Listen, he tells them, it's through faith. It's through their faith in Jesus. Our joy comes through faith. And so how do we have faith? Where does it come from? Well, scripture says that it comes from the Lord. If we lack faith, what do we do? We ask him. When's the last time you went to God and got on your knees and truly pled that he would give you faith? You know it's okay to do that, right? Like, it's okay for you to be like, God, I'm struggling with my faith. God, I have some doubts. God, I don't know that I feel like you're gonna come through right now. God, in the midst of everything that's happening right now, it's so hard for me to have an eternal perspective. Where are you? Like, you know you can ask him for faith. It actually says that he'll give it to you freely. From the first time that we have faith in Jesus to the continuing growth that we have in the maturity of that faith, it's always initiated by God. And so I wonder, as we're wrestling with this perspective of eternity, where we are going to him and examining our faith. That's not to say that if you have doubts that God doesn't love you or you're out. It's just one of those things where, listen, God's a good parent. He gives his children what they ask for. We have to be a people that ask God to continually strengthen and grow our faith in who he is and what he's done. So I don't know about you, but, but when things are uncertain, it's very hard for me to have an eternal perspective because I get blinded by what's right in front of me. And I just wonder if this is a reminder for us right now is a community of people in a very uncertain season that God's calling us to zoom out and keep an eternal perspective in mind in everything that we do and how we view our suffering and how we view our relationships and our money and how we view what we find fulfillment in and what we're building. If God isn't just whispering to us that, listen, uncertainty is okay because I've called you to something bigger. That takes us to the last perspective that we're going to be in. And I think this one is going to hit those of us who maybe feel a bit marginalized or like God's forgotten us or, or we aren't noticed. And so let's keep reading here in verse 10. He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was set to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time of the time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So let me reframe it from what he's saying. Hey, this salvation that you have, that you rejoice in, that was such a valuable, pivotal piece of God's plan for humanity that the prophets thousands of years ago were constantly asking God, when, 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 when are you saving us? When is the Messiah coming? When is Jesus gonna be here? When is this gonna happen? He said, and this last one blows me away, that angels long to look into. So that's a weird sentence. So let's dig into what he's saying here. Um, there's some Jewish literature that talks about kind of how angels interact with humanity. And you see this pattern in the Old Testament and even some extra biblical literature of this dynamic of angels holding an interest in God's creation and interacting with that subservient to the will of God the Father, right? And so think about everything the angels have seen for a second. Um, they were there for creation, right? They were there when God did everything. 
But salvation is talked about as this thing that they long to peer into. They're fascinated by it. They can't believe it. It blows them away. Of everything that God has done, the salvation of mankind is described as this reality that angels are excited about because of its magnitude. So here's what this is reminding them of the perspective of God's purpose. Listen, in uncertainty, it's like, God, where are you? God, I don't feel safe. God, did you forget about me? Think about these Christians. God, I'm in this place where I'm being persecuted and marginalized. People don't wanna hang out with me and talk to me. I feel rejected. Where are you? Why am I here? He says, listen, you are the product of a purpose for mankind that I have had since the beginning of creation. You are so valuable that the reality of the salvation that you're rejoicing in is the most exciting thing that the angels can look at. They can't wait. It was waited upon for thousands of years by God's servants. You're not an afterthought. God hasn't forgotten you because of difficulty. This isn't a side note in history. You are important because God has planned to save you from the beginning. That's it, man. And so you are a part of God's greater purpose. Uncertainty doesn't change that. And I wonder if we're not joyful because we feel like, God, you're not coming through for me. God, you're not doing what I need you to do. God, you're not showing up the way that I need you to show up because these elements of my life aren't lining up. And scripture just would call us back to God's purpose. God's ultimate purpose for you is rooted in your salvation that was won in Jesus Christ. And it's done. It's over. It's finished. Now we expectantly wait for the fulfillment of that promise in eternity. And so listen, just like every week when we come to the table, we are celebrating this reality. We're going to talk a lot through 1 Peter about what we do about it, right? So how do we engage with an uncertain world? That's really the next few chapters of 1 Peter. But this first one is this foundational element of, of, of the stance that we take. How do we prepare ourselves to engage an uncertain world? How can we be people that aren't moved but are actually defined by the indescribable joy at the truth of who Jesus Christ is? Well, it's the perspective that we get a tangible reminder of at the table. The bread reminds us of Christ's body broken for us on the cross. The blood reminds us of his blood spilled for us, that our sins would be forgiven, that would be a new creation in Jesus Christ, and that we have this eternal life. And that, yes, God is working here, but not just here. He's going to continue to work beyond the pain and sickness and death that we won't escape in this life. He's working beyond the suffering and the frustrations and the heartbreak, that we have this promise of eternal life that we can't help but celebrate. And so as we respond in worship, I want us to be mindful of our perspective in an uncertain world. Are we people of an inexpressible joy? Or has our perspective of our identity been stamped out by the expectation? Do we have an eternal perspective on what God's doing? Or are we so caught up with what's right in front of our face that we forget this larger truth about what it means to be children of God? And do we feel like God's forgotten us? Or, or can we return to this promise he's made, that he has this purpose for us, that he's had in mind since the beginning of time? I think these perspectives are critical to us being a people who are marked by our indescribable joy in the person and work of Jesus. And so as we prepare ourselves to celebrate communion, we celebrate what Jesus has done. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you that you have not just forgiven us of our sins so we can live a good life now, but so that we can have eternal life in the future. 
God, we pray that as we come and we celebrate communion, that you would anchor our hearts in these perspectives and these realities, that we would know you, that we would trust that you are good, and that we would be continually transformed by the way your spirit is working with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.